Well, good day, Fellowship family. It's great to have you with us as we get into God's Word. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 3. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. And if you don't have one at home, take this with us. It's our gift to you. Um, But if you do have one, leave it so we can give it to someone else. We're going to get into the Word, and over these next four weeks, these next four talks or messages, we're going to look at the Word through uh, three different lenses. And one is when we look at just this concept of what does the Word say, because God's Word is our guide here. We all lean in, and when we do this together... Uh, there's like a compounding effect of what could happen, not just in us, in each of us individually, but in us as a church. And so we need to always be linked to the Word of God. It's our truth. It's, it was what's right and good for us. But then secondly, we want to look at under, look at the Word under the lens, under the lens of, of what is. And this is the, reality lens in our lives. Uh, you know, the Word of God always confronts us. It always uh, comes and prompts us from time to time. And what I like to do when we're going through it is have each person here try to interact with it. What does this mean to me? What will this look like in my life? And so we'll talk about that. And then this final lens is, involves us as a church, and it answers the question... What if? And we present different ideas of what it could look like if we all believed the word, applied it to our lives, and did the same things together. Okay, so this is my gift of exhortation. I love, I love to preach like this. This is how I preach pretty much every week. This is why I love to get up on a Saturday or a Sunday morning and know I get to preach. And that is because I really believe this is truth, not just for me, but for all of us right? And, and the more that we can have this moment where we understand the word, apply it to our lives, and then act with a group of believers, I think we can take a moment of what happens in here and have a movement of God in us. Some of the things we do this already with, like our daily devotional, over a thousand of you have purchased that, that uh, daily devotional that's in our atrium there that has us read the same word each day over the course of each day of this year. And then each time it has us and it prompts us with the same things on what to pray for. And there's power when all of us are praying together for the same things, whether it's in our community or in our churches, for our families, uh, for our lives. And then I think this is what gets me excited. What if we all took God at his word and acted on it together? So over the course of these four weeks, um, we're going to have these, these different lenses, different perspectives up here, and then we'll get rid of them, so we'll go on to something else. But uh, I, I wanted to share it with you on that. And as we look at this first, as we look at this first week of the Everything series, we're going to look at a principle, a principle for everything or of everything in our lives. And we're going to look at this person in John 3 named John the Baptist. I don't know what you know about him. He's not the John of the book of John. That was an apostle who followed Jesus and also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well as Revelation. But this John was a different one. And he came in what the scriptures called the spirit and power of Elijah. 
Just as Elijah had a camel hair robe and a leather belt, just as Elijah in the Old Testament ate locusts and honey as his food. <laughs> that's, the, that's definitely the, a new diet for us, and I'm not suggesting it. But just as he did that, John the Baptist did that. Just as Elijah was out in the wilderness, John the Baptist was out in the Judean wilderness. And it's just all desert. John the Baptist uh, was born six months earlier than, than Christ. He was the cousin of Jesus. And his, he was born to a priestly family. And you had to, that was all from your bloodline if you were a priest. You had to come from the tribe of Levi. And so he came from that. And so it was most likely that he literally served in the temple during a time. And what every priest would do is they, as people brought their sacrifices, they would say, that's acceptable because that is blameless, it's spotless, or that has a spot on it, it can't be acceptable for the sacrifice. And so it gives more meaning when when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the acceptable sacrifice. John was the first prophet all through the Old Testament. He was the first prophet to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And his whole ministry, his whole life was to proclaim Jesus and to prepare a way for him. Jesus said of John the Baptist, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. (laughs) Okay, so I'm just trying for the well done, good and faithful servant. But could you imagine if Jesus said this about you? I mean, this is the type of caliber of character of John the Baptist. And so we're going to look at him, and we're coming to him at a season in his ministry where um, this is really really going to help us understand what he says and give it meaning. So John was baptizing in the Jordan River, and he was was, uh, calling people to repent and prepare their lives for a king that would come, the king named Jesus. And as he baptized people in that, um, at one day when Jesus was baptizing near him, people were no longer coming to John. They were going to Jesus. If you're in business, this is not good business. People are no longer coming to us. They're going to our competitor down the street. If you're a school and people are no longer enrolling in you or parents are pulling their kids out of school, I mean, there's whenever someone no longer comes to us when we have influence with them, there's this feeling of loss, isn't it? Like me. I mean, over these past two years, we didn't have organized meetings. We did have organized meetings. We didn't. And when people got upset about that or people had left or people got angry about that, I felt loss. And so this passage, this passage comforted my heart during this time. It showed me really a principle that needs to guide everything, not just in our church, but in our lives. And so let's read it. So John answered them when people were going away from him. He said this, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. Okay, 
We're going to learn in this, the principle of everything is the simple statement in verse 30 there. Look at it again. He must increase, but I must decrease. If What could happen if this kind of was the lens that we used to process everything in our lives? This simple, simple uh, principle of he must increase... I must decrease. This is John the Baptist. And in doing that, he shows us, he shows us the posture, the principle that if it were, if this were the principle guiding everything in our lives, Jesus becomes greater. Do you realize that if you're a follower of Jesus, that's the goal of your life? That's the mission of your life. It's not to get more followers on Facebook. It's not for getting more money. It's not for getting the next position. It's not for accumulating the next a bit of wealth or the parcel of land. Your goal and my goal as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, if you say you're a Christian, you are saying you are wanting to live your life Christ-like. I know Christian is a quick tag that we add on. Of course I'm a Christian. But in, in reality, a Christian follows christ And John the Baptist led the way. We live with this principle, if you're a follower of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, so let's look at the beliefs that hold up this principle in our lives. And look at it again at verse 27. John answered them and said, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Okay, there was a belief... There was a belief with John the Baptist, the first one, is that God is the owner and giver of everything. Did you realize that? I know there's some resistance when I say this because we live in the United States, which has a high claim for personal property. What's mine? What's mine? And we, we tend to view what we have and those things tend to take on our, in our, our identity. And yet, and yet, what John is saying here is, I got nothing. I got nothing that didn't come from God. God's the owner. He's the giver of everything. And as I look at this, read all in the scriptures of the people of God on everything that they had. And they came to a point where they realized at one point or another, through prosperity or through poverty, they learned this picture. God's the owner. He's the giver of everything. I memorized Psalm 89 verse 11 this week. It says, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and everything in it, you founded them. And it's just this, this belief throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, that whatever we have, it's not mine. It's been given by God. If some of you have a financial advisor and they're managing your, your uh, resources as you prepare for retirement, I mean, Topeka has a lot of them, okay? We have a major industry here in helping people invest their resources. But it would be wrong for a financial advisor to say, this is my money. <laughs> we want them to act like it's their money, but they don't own the money. Their whole picture of effectiveness is how they invest the money that's been entrusted to them. And God is the same way. 
He is the owner. He's the giver. And so our role is that of stewardship. We steward what God has entrusted to us. Let's look at the next verse. Look at verse 28. John says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Okay, so this belief is a little bit different than the first belief uh, holding up this principle, and, and that is Christ in his rightful place. John realized it's not about me. And when Jesus was in his rightful place in John's life, everything could fit into its right place. Did you realize that? When Jesus is in his rightful place, you can tell everything else where to go. You really can when he's leading, when he's your first, when he's your best, when, when people go, what, what are we going to do? People are going to Jesus. John says, you know, it's not me. I'm not the Christ. He is. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. He didn't view it as loss because Christ was the reason he was living his life. You, this may be foreign to some of you who may have come, from, come out of religion to come to fellowship. And religion is a thing that you go and you sit down in a place and you check the box because you went to church and then you just go and live your life. And as long as you got that hour of check off each week, you're feeling better. And ultimately what the life of a follower of Jesus is far more than the hour. It's far more than what happens in here. It's really a picture of keeping Christ in his rightful place throughout life. So he's first in our marriages. He's first in our families. There just should be no question about Christ's rightful position or place in our lives. Because when he's first, when he's best, everything else fits in its place. When I have lived without Christ in his rightful place, there's a battle for a lot of things in my life. There's a battle for influence and do people like me? There's the, va- there's the battle for things. Well, the next gadget that I want, will that take over my, you know, the control of my thoughts and my emotions? And whatever it is, whether it's a vacation or the next experience, those things will take over if Christ is not in his rightful place. Now, look at the illustration that John uses to, to really teach them clearly. Verse 29, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Okay, so he's showing us a picture of an ancient Middle Eastern best man at a wedding, okay? And he's saying in, in that role there, the, if you were the best man or the friend of the bridegroom, he recognized his role. He recognized his role. He's not the bride. He's not the bridegroom. But he got excited about calling everyone to experience the marriage. That's what the best man would do. Come on, everyone. The marriage is about to happen. And here's one thing that most, most best men don't take care of. He took care of the room where they would consummate their marriage at that wedding night. The most intimate, personal room. I know some of you are blushing, but we can talk about it at church, okay? 
And he would guard that room. He would prepare that room. And after the reception, after the banquet, when the bride and groom would come, he could hear their voices coming, perhaps giggling and laughing as they came up the stairs. And he opened the door, and he shut the door, and he stood out the door, and he said, yes, finally, it happened. All my responsibility is over. (laughs) And that's what John was saying. He said, I'm not the bride. Who's the bride? Believers, people who put their faith and trust in Christ. Who's the groom? Christ, right? Christ is in that role. And his greatest joy was to see people connect to Christ. That's why I would say that that's, that's his role. And ultimately, this belief transfers to us is that the gospel brings joy. That was John's greatest joy was for people to meet Jesus. Do you see how this, how, how this is working in his life? He's not the owner. He's not the giver of ministry that he had. He was just someone who was being faithful, living in a humble way so that Christ could become greater, stepping down from himself. And when people came to him, he was faithful. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. When people went away from him, he said, go to Jesus, go to Jesus. And they did. And his greatest joy, he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. There was no greater joy than for people to trust Christ. I remember several years ago when my son was, I think, eight or nine years old, and he had a friend named Chandler Clam, and Chandler's in this service right now, but I remember he invited Chandler to church, and he wanted Chandler to meet Jesus. And as a parent, I was just so thankful for him. It just brought joy to my heart that my sons were looking for friends around them that didn't know Jesus and wanted to trust in him. And I remember that Sunday morning, I would sit out, this is over at our old church at 17th and Indian Hills, and people would file out and I would, you know, greet them and talk to them, just kind of classic pastor stuff to do. And up out of the crowd comes my little son and he comes up and he goes, Dad, Dad, Jesus invited Chandler into his heart. And I knew he was excited. I said, Jesus invited Chandler into his heart. He goes, oh no, Chandler invited Jesus into his heart. He was just so excited. That brings me joy. I think about how our Heavenly Father takes great joy in his children when they share the greatest gift they've ever been given. The greatest gift you've ever been given is the gospel. And it brings joy. That, that fuels everything in our lives. Everything as our church. That's why Fellowship Bible Church is here to help people find and follow Jesus. Which is why John would say, he must increase, but I must decrease. And here's that principle here. All that I am and have is to make Christ greater. The only way we will make Christ increase is to decrease ourselves. And that whole picture of everything that I am, 
Everything that I have exists to make the name of Jesus greater. Do you know that every weekend we gather together, we practice that in this room? We come in and go, it's not about what you own. It's not the house you live in, not the car you live in, not how you're dressed. It's all about Jesus. If you look at the lyrics to every song that we sang, if you looked at all of us saying the ground is level at the cross, none of us deserve this, but all of us can have it. It's not how good you are that gets you in. It's not how awesome you are, your accomplishments that keeps you in or that God goes, okay, this is my preferred person. No, the gospel levels it. So that when we receive it and we live in the grace of God and we live in the power of the gospel, we can just go, wow, this can't be about me. If it's going to be about God, it can't be about me. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the principle of everything in our lives. So let's talk about now this lens of what it is in us. In order for us to live like this, what has to happen in these four areas? And when I think about this first area of God being the owner and giver of everything, that's all about ownership. And when it comes to ownership in our lives, we're going to have the choice. It's either going to be about God's, what's God's, or, (laughs) here's a threatening word, mine. I've known mine since I was two years old. I've been coming to church for a long time, and it was even inside and outside of church this would happen. I'm a young kid, I'm playing on the floor with my Legos, and I'm building this huge building, building taller than me with these Legos, and all of a sudden another dude comes in, and he walks in, and he karate chops my building, and it crashes to the ground, and then he takes the top of it and goes over there and plays with it. And what do I do? Mine! Mine, that's mine! And I would cry and all kick and all that kind of stuff. We don't do that anymore because we're far too mature for that until we park our cars in the Walmart parking lot and the southern wind grabs the person's door next to us and it puts a doorting into our cars and we go, what? Mine! Right? Now, I'm not expecting you to go, oh, that was such a glorious experience. Here, hit the other side of my car. (laughs) But why do we get so angry when we lose things? is because we have a sense of ownership with the things that we have. Why is it the more that we accumulate, the more worried we are when they break, or the more consumed we are when they're not working as they're supposed to? And can we really keep up with it? I mean, how many upgrades are out there? How many revisions are there? How many times do we have to purchase something and the next thing So because it's, it's so much better than the previous thing? It's either going to be God's or it's mine. The second thing that I want to talk to you about has to do, when we talk about Christ in his rightful place, we're talking about lordship. And, 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 and when I talk about lordship, I'm, I'm really talking about the throne of your life. Who's calling the shots for you? Who's in control because ultimately, if I view that God's the owner and giver of everything in my life, then things are not mine to control or to compare with other people. Things are God's, right? And who's ruling your life, it will either be Christ or it will be self. 
I'm sorry about the squeaking, okay? But it could be chalk, okay? Just giving you a little bit better experience here, okay? So if, if Christ is not on the throne of your life, you will be self-ruled. And that is a very popular thing in our world today. We value, in our world, the secular world values a self-ruled life. Self-defined life, self-identified life, and we think that we can craft the own, our own image for ourselves and project that and expect everyone else to just joyfully receive who we want to be and what we want to do. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want, we don't really trust authority and we don't trust larger organizations to do things. And so unless Christ is at the, at the top of your list, unless he's ruling your life, it will be about you. And all I would ask is, is this working? Why do we have anxiety, worry, depression off the charts? Because the self-ruled life is crushing us. It really is. It's too much for you to define who you are and protect who you are. That happened back in, in middle school when you're coming uh, into, into uh, awakening to your identity. It's crushing because everyone wants to tell you how to live. Everyone wants you to just be your own self-made person. And all I'm saying is it's crushing for either you to live that way or expect others to live that way. If you've ever had a highly controlling parent who wanted you to live a certain way, you know this crushing nature of who's ruling your life. And here, John had Christ in his rightful place. And then on this third concept of of joy, that really has to do with your relationship. And, And really, the emotion that comes from that is either joy or fear. John's disciples came to him in fear. What are we going to do? People are going to Jesus. We're losing people. They aren't, they aren't coming to you anymore, John. He was, goes, they weren't mine in the first place. They were God's. And what's happening, exactly why I was born, exactly why I'm here, is, why, is what's happening. That joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Do you see that? That's, that's really something. In generosity, in the giving away of our time, in serving, in the giving away of our energy, in helping someone process their lives, in, in the giving of our money and our resources, we're either going to do it out of joy or out of fear. We want to be a church that celebrates joyful generosity. That's the whole concept of the New Testament church. They didn't give things out of obligation. They didn't grudgingly say, here, take it, you know. Well, no. There are people who did it out of joy. And that's what we want. We want people giving out of joy, not fear. And then finally, when it comes down to, to all that I am and all that I have is to make Christ greater, this is about worship. And it's either going to be about God or things. It'll be God or everything else. That's what we try to rehearse each week when we gather together. That's why when we gather together as a church family, this is important for us to do to make Christ the greatest thing in this room so you can go and make him the greatest thing out in the world. 
and all of life is worship, this is not the only place you should worship. All of life is worship. And your worship is either going to be about God or the other things in your life. And you just look at the history of Israel. They worshiped other gods instead of the God who delivered them out of Egypt. We've talked through this the whole year. There always are temptations to worship other things rather than God. Always. So if you've received things, worship God with the things. There's nothing wrong with having a house. There's nothing wrong with having a nice car. There's nothing wrong with having... But what are you doing those things so that that Christ can increase? Because when you're not worshiping God, doesn't matter how much money you have, you'll worship other things. I've lived in poverty when I was going through seminary, and I just longed for the next money so I could pay my bills and I could make it through there. And I just longed, I found myself comparing to other people who had more and resenting that and living in that. It just rotted out the joy in, in what God had already provided for me. So it doesn't matter how much you have if you're not worshiping God. See, the principle that John lived by, that Jesus taught, is ultimately my heart follows my treasure. Okay, we're done with the squeaking for a while. Okay. So really, where Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's the things that you worry about, you think about, you want the most, you desire, you expect and anticipate the most that usually is our treasure. And with John, it was people coming to Jesus. See, that, that was his treasure So everything in his life followed that. Okay, let me talk to you about what if. And this is the final lens that we'll look at today. And it's it's a principle that if everyone understood that principle of he must increase, and we looked at everything God has entrusted to us, and we lived with this word, certainty. I had a friend who works in the uh, money markets in financial uh, advising, and he said, I want everyone to be certain that they'll have enough money when they retire. And I thought, how interesting. I want everyone to live with certainty that when they die, they're going to be okay. See, that's my role as a pastor, not just to prepare you for that day when you die or the day that Christ returns, whichever comes first, but to, to live for eternity. And this simple, this simple picture of he must um, increase. I, I'm doing this again just so we never forget it, must decrease is, is based on the reality, the reality that someday He will, and I will. What did Paul write? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? See, there's never going to be time in history, in eternity, where we go, wait a minute, he's not everything. 
There's never going to be a time in heaven where we don't recognize that God is the owner and giver of everything, that Jesus is on his rightful place, that there's joy in being with Jesus, and that all that we are and all that we have is to make Christ greater for eternity, for eternity. And it won't be boring. It won't be terry cloth robes playing harp on cottony clouds or anything like that. This is going to be eternal discovery and adventure with a God who created the universe, taking us on journeys where we'll see more of him and explore. We will not be bored in heaven. So why would we live as that that's a strange day that's not going to happen to us? Why would we live where we're at the top of the chain and Christ is at the bottom of our lives? Why would we do that if we're going to live like that for eternity? The answer is we shouldn't, right? He will increase. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Some people will go, oh, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. And other people will go, oh, no, I didn't realize it, but he's Lord. We have to realize that. And so to live with this certainty is going to change us. What could it look like for us as a church? So here's my challenge. Throughout this month, we're asking you to think about and pray. What could happen if we all gave 1% more of our income to the Lord at fellowship? And we didn't do it begrudgingly. We didn't do it where we do it joyfully with joyful generosity. Most of us, most of us can come up with 1% of our annual incomes and give it more to the Lord. If you make $50,000 a year, that's $45 or $47 a month more to the Lord at Fellowship. I'm going to share with you what that little amount will do if everyone of us did that. And we're going to have a process not only that, that celebrates the, what God can do with us as a church, but celebrates with other groups in our community that we can bless. Next week, next week, I want to encourage you to join us on the Great Generosity Experiment. Next week, we're going to ask you to bring your, your canned goods and your dry goods and I know some of you eat all fresh, okay? And so uh, don't bring lettuce or fruit or things like that. Uh, but stop somewhere on the way to church and pick up some canned goods or some dry goods. We're going to build a mountain of food out front in our, in our atrium, and we're going to give it to the Topeka Rescue Mission as they help under-resourced families in our community. We believe this about everyone who comes to fellowship. You will always have food if you come here. And if you don't have food, connect with people at the Welcome Center. We would love to help you. That's why we want to be generous. So everyone in our family is fed. But we also want to feed our community. Second week, we're going to do clothing. I did it two weeks ago just in preparing for it because I wanted to see how it felt. I went through my closet and I took out 10% of my clothing. Just said, every 10th one, it's the Lord's. Number one, I realized, dude, you got a lot of clothing. But then when I took it out and I made this pile, I looked back at my closet and I said, did I even do a dent? Did I even do that? And some of you are going, yes, and go out and buy some new clothes. Okay, whatever you do, whatever motivates you, I want to encourage you to do this. And I want you to give the better of your clothes, not clothes that were stuck back in the 70s, okay? Even though that's coming back, just keep them in your closet Give God your first and your best, and we'll clothe people who are in need through the Topeka Rescue Mission. 
We're going to have a truck parked out in front, and we're going to fill that truck over the course of that weekend to do that. By the way, we're going to sort all those clothes before we give them to the Topeka Rescue Mission because that would overwhelm them on the amount of clothes that they would get. And we don't want them paying people to do it. So if you look at that QR code, that's for volunteer sign-up to help sort those clothes. If you've got a few extra hours during business hours during the week, we'd love to have you come and help sort that so we can give bundles of men's medium shirts and women's small shirts and things like that. And then finally, on the last weekend of this month, we're going, to, we're going to furnish homes. And here's the homes. There are people living who are homeless, and they're going through a program uh, with a group here in town that really moves people out of homelessness and into homes. We're going to furnish those homes. So some of you, I'm not asking for 10% of your furniture, okay? But let's say you look down in your basement, you've got a lamp, or you've got, or, or you've got a, a bedside table, or a, a, a frame for a bed, or a, a cabinet, or something like that. Um, you might even have a television you want to give that works, okay? <laughs> we want to bless these families, and we want to share our stuff with them. They're coming out of homelessness, and we want to bless them and furnish their homes. I don't know how many homes we'll be able to furnish, but wouldn't it be cool if just this room furnished a few homes? We have the capacity to do it. God has given it. He's the owner. We're not. And we can give that to him with joyful generosity. And as we practice this, here's what God will do. He'll melt our hearts. He'll melt our hearts from all the things that keep him from increasing in our lives. When we step down from ourselves, he increases. So I hope you'll join me on this. That's why we're calling it the Great Generosity Experiment because I think this is really cool. This is a memorable moment for us and for our kids. Your kids are going to have this handout when you pick them up today also. And it's something that we all can do together. I hope you'll join me. Thanks. Would you stand and I'll close this in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thanks for each person in this room. Thanks for bringing them to this place where we could lean into your word, understand what it means to us, understand the battle that's at war between us and you, between the world and you, between keeping it all and hoarding it all versus being joyfully generous and giving it all to you. May you work in our hearts. May we worship you with the things we have to make Christ increase when we step down from ourselves. It's in his name that I pray and for his glory that I live, I pray. Amen. God bless you, church.